But I want to uh, really focus in on a few things that the Lord says to the Israelites and particularly when he calls them a kingdom of priests. Uh, But I want to actually start with the New Testament. Have Have you ever wondered why the New Testament writers place an importance on Jesus' resurrection being on the third day? Jesus even said that the timing of his resurrection on the third day is what is written in the scriptures. Hosea 6 verse 2 says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Most likely that's uh, what Jesus meant. That's the verse he was referring to when he was talking about the third day. But in the Bible, this pattern of three days, sometimes three months, sometimes three years, signifies a time in which people are to prepare for an event of spiritual significance. In the three days, day one is the day of the announcement, day two is the day of preparation, and then day three is the day of the event. We see that in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Day one is the Friday. The announcement is when he cries out from the cross, it is finished. It's a declaration that the work of atonement was completed, but there was something more yet to come on the basis of that atoning work. Day two was Saturday, the Sabbath. It was a day when Jesus' disciples, and in fact everyone, rested. It was a day of anticipation, a day of preparation for what was to happen on the third day, the day that the new creation broke in on the Sunday when Jesus rose victorious from sin and death, when Jesus came as the first fruits of our own resurrection. It was the inauguration of the new creation, the most significant event spiritually in the history of the whole world. Well, this uh, three-day pattern that we see in the Bible, I believe it finds its precedent here. As the Israelites arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai and they're told to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord onto the mountain to make his covenant with them on the third day. It's also the third moon, the third month after they came out of Egypt. So that signifies that uh, there was a three month time of preparation as they were travelling from Egypt to Sinai and we saw that in the testing of Moses and of the people as They were hungry and thirsty and God provided bread and water and as he taught them the principle of the Sabbath. Part of this three-day preparation involved them being told the reason why they had been brought to Sinai. They're told what the Lord will do for them and what their required response is. They were told to obey my voice and keep my covenant and he would make them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation 
Well, what does it mean to be a priest? Well, Hebrews 7.26, um, I'm not even going to bother with that. Hebrews 7.26 describes for us the, the ideal standard of a priest, a standard that was met perfectly by Jesus. It says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. See there that the primary attribute that a a priest has to have to do his job is holiness. It's captured there in those words, innocent, unstained, separated and exalted. The role of a priest is to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. And so in his ministry as our great high priest, Jesus' perfect holiness means he can fully represent God to us in his triune glory. So that in Jesus we see the fullness of the perfection of God himself in his absolute holiness. And it means also that he can represent us to God. He doesn't do that as a sinner. He does it as the embodiment of the goal of holiness that God has for us. He stands before God as the perfect and the perfected human being. He's the last Adam who in his resurrection from the dead has become fully everything that God has intended for human beings as sons and daughters of the Father. You may be familiar with the old hymn that was sung at Billy Graham Crusades as people came forward to receive Christ. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. I think today in uh, some of popular Christian culture, we like to echo the first part of the first line, just as I am, and leave it at that. Why? Well, because we think God loves us and thinks we're wonderful, and so we come just as I am, as if I deserve to come to him. So we've turned the gospel call into God accepts you just as you are, so add him into your life and he'll start solving your problems and he'll give you the things that you think you deserve. Sadly, uh, many popular worship songs I hear today speak a lot about us coming directly to God but little about the fact that we can only come to God through the priestly mediatorial work of Christ. I cannot, I dare not come directly to God just as I am. Not only because as a sinner I can't stand before the pure holiness of his majesty, but also because as a mere creature I can't presume to stand before the sovereign creator in my own stead. I can only come to God the Father as I am in Christ. 
clothed in his righteousness, his purity, his holiness. It's in Christ and in Christ alone that I can be raised up from the death of my sin and seated in him at the right hand of the Father as an adopted child and heir. It's only in Christ that we can be taken from that starting point of Eden and brought right through to the consummation, the new creation, or as the Bible puts it, to be glorified. That's why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me. Not because he managed to get it right and everyone else got it wrong. It's because Jesus is the only one in all creation who is perfectly qualified to be that one mediator, that priest between us and the one true God. If the Christian faith was just about hearing good teaching and seeking to emulate it, well, there's many places we could go to find wisdom. But none of the teachers, none of the philosophers, none of the the scholars of this world qualify to be that spotless high priest who can actually bring us to the Father. They may be able to tell us how to live life, but they can never give us life. Jesus alone gives life because he is life. The very life of God himself brought to us through his priestly ministry. And so, as the hymn continues, just as I am, with just one plea, that thy blood was shed for me. The gospel call is to repent and believe. To come knowing that just as I am actually fails to meet the standard of holiness that God requires. And so in coming, I should expect to be changed, to be transformed as Jesus, my great high priest, sprinkles me with the blood of his sacrifice, his own blood, as he consecrates me to make me holy and clean, to make me able to stand blameless in the presence of God without fear of condemnation. Well, that's the nature of priesthood, perfectly expressed by Jesus. In short, we could say a priest makes people holy as he is holy. He provides them with the same level of access to the holy God that he has. And so here's the astounding thing. The Lord says to the Israelites, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The reason they exist as a people, the reason he chose them, the reason he redeemed them from slavery, the reason he put his favour upon them and brought them to this mountain where he's about to enter into covenant relationship with them, it's not just for them. It's for all nations. Israel is both to be a representation of the Lord to all of the nations around them, but also to be a representative nation 
standing before the Lord on behalf of all the nations of the earth. So right from the outset, Israel is to see that they have a vocation. They're blessed in order to be a blessing. One nation among all the nations, one people among all the peoples. They are made to be God's treasured possession in order to communicate to the world that his plan is actually to gather people from every tribe and tongue and nation and to make them into one people who will be for the praise of his glorious grace. So that's why their three days of preparation, of consecration, is consecration, of being made holy. This consecration is signified by those two things, the the washing of their garments. Uh, A priest would always have to have clean garments before he went into the tabernacle. And they were also to abstain from sexual relations. That's the meaning of that funny little phrase, do not go near a woman. It was just a colloquialism for no sexual activity as a sign that they were not being distracted from their focus on the Lord and what he was about to do. Then on the third day, they came out and they were to stand before the mountain. Just like the priests would stand before the holy place in the tabernacle as the Lord made his holy presence known to them, the thunder, the lightning, a thick cloud and a trumpet blast. This was a picture, an enactment of their vocation as a priestly nation to stand before the Lord as he makes known the beauty and the terror of his holiness, ready to be sent out from that place to then be a light to the nations. Now this vocational call to Israel hasn't come to an end now that Jesus has come as the great high priest. Rather the mantle has now been passed onto God's new covenant people. So Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter's saying very clearly by paraphrasing Exodus 19 that the call given to Israel at Sinai is now reiterated and given to us in Christ. And he makes explicit what was implied at Sinai. The reason for our vocation as a royal priesthood is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. That's the mission of the church. That's my mission. That's your mission. A church that is not proclaiming the excellencies of Christ isn't a church. It's a club. We're not made holy so that we can be a holy huddle. We're made holy so that we can be qualified to be the bearers of the glad tidings, the good news of great joy, the light of the gospel to a world that's in darkness. Now what's taking place over these few chapters 
is the establishment of the covenant. We've just heard in chapter 19 the preamble or the introduction where the Lord says, in effect, this is what it's all about. My purpose in coming to you in this covenant is that you may be my treasured possession and that you may be my priestly people through whom I'll accomplish my plan for the nations. It's a bit like a wedding. We were at a wedding on Friday and it had this structure. The couple first declare their intent, their consent to be married by saying, I will. And then they say their vows, their promises for what they will do to uh, and for one another when they are married. The reason a wedding is structured like this is because a wedding is a covenant ceremony. So the Israelites say in response to the Lord's declaration of intent, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Before they even hear what the Lord is going to tell them what to do. And that's the nature of a covenant. It's an unconditional relationship based on promises. In a covenant we don't say I'll do these things but only if I think that you are doing your part of the bargain. That's not a covenant, that's a contract. It's based on, not on trust, but on mistrust. In the Lord's covenant with Israel, he says to them essentially, I am the covenant partner that you can trust. I will keep my word. I am the Lord your God who's already proven myself to you in all of the things I've done in bringing you out of Egypt. So you can be assured that anything I require of you in the covenant will only be for your good and it will flow out of my electing, redeeming love for you. So it's his revealed character that gives Israel the confidence to say, we will. That in the end is where our assurance lies. Not merely in what God has done for us and is doing, but that we see his character revealed in what he does. It's through what he does that we come to know him. And so what comes next are the basic terms of the covenants. What's expected of the people? But see how they're prefaced by the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The commandments that follow, they aren't the way in which the Israelites make the Lord their God, but in the way that they express the fact that he already is the Lord their God. The law was never meant to be a means of justification. Justification has always been by grace through faith from Adam onwards. The law plays two key roles. Firstly, it exposes our sin and our need for mercy, showing us how far short of the glory of God we fall. And secondly, it describes a person who's living out the grace of God in which they stand. And so in our context here, it is the Lord telling Israel what it will look like as they embrace the call to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's important that we understand how the 
various aspects of the law fit together. Um, and I was going to have this picture up on the screen, but it's gone, but I've got it printed uh, in the, uh, the newsletter. Firstly, there is the spirit of the law. That's the eternal principle based on God's character of love. And it's love for the Lord our God and love for our neighbour. That law was in place from the beginning of creation. In fact, it was in place before creation when Father, Son and Holy Spirit practised that love in their Trinitarian unity. Then because sin came into the world, the written moral law was introduced, summed up in this moral code of the Ten Commandments. All of the other 603 commandments in the Old Testament law can be traced back to one of these ten. And then for Old Testament Israel, God's chosen people with this unique calling in the world to be his priestly people, this moral law of the Ten Commandments was then applied in all of their civil laws, in all of their laws of worship, all of the laws that made them distinct and set them apart from all of the nations around them. Those strange laws about how you cut your hair and uh, the kind of clothes you wear were all about making them separate, holy, different to everyone else. Now Jesus said, I came to fulfil the law and he did it in two ways. He made the civil and ceremonial laws obsolete since God's people are no longer defined by a nation who are looking forward to the coming of Jesus but by the church. People from all nations living in the fact that Jesus has come. And then he fulfilled the moral law by perfectly living it out on our behalf and showing us that that is actually what defines the life of one who is truly human living in this world. Now the time will come when this written moral code will also pass away in its written form because we will see him face to face. Our battle with sin will be over. We'll walk in the full freedom of the Spirit and we will obey without hesitation the Spirit of the law of love. We'll love the Lord our God and we'll love our neighbour perfectly forever. So we could think of the law also from the perspective of these three time frames. The old covenant in which all three applied, the Spirit on which was built, the moral law on which was built the application We're now in the new covenant times in which the spirit of the law and the moral code still apply but when eternity breaks through in the new creation the spirit of the law which is always applied will remain forever and there will be no longer any need for a written law. Now two weeks ago I touched on the structure of these ten commandments We saw that the first three are a summary of what it would look like to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul and strength. The last six are a summary of what it would look like to love their neighbour as themselves. And in the middle, connecting the two great commands, sits the Sabbath. And see how the Sabbath 
command encompasses both. It's a day to honour God and recall his great work of creation. His rest on the seventh day was a celebration that he had made everything good. And at the same time, it's, a, it's made very clear that it's a day when all people, even, even animals, were to be rested and to be renewed. No one was excluded from this privilege of rest, not even servants or foreigners. And it's a privilege. They turned it into a burden. They turned it into a, 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 a heavy weight. You must obey the Sabbath. But what a privilege that God says, I've created you to be my children and so I'm going to build into the structure of you as a people this time of rest. So we saw that the practice of the Sabbath was unique to Israel out of all the nations. It was a declaration to the whole earth that the Lord isn't a master who drives people as slaves. He is a father who invites people into his family as his children. Now as you heard the Ten Commandments read, I wonder if it struck you that the way that some of them are popularly misunderstood is uh, sometimes a bit simplistic and sometimes even misses the point of what they're actually saying. So let's briefly just look at each one of them. I think we've got the right slides up now. Commandment one is very clear, isn't it? There's only one true God and no one is to be given place in our lives apart from him as God. Commandment two is about the true worship of the one true God. He's the creator of all things. And so he can't actually be compared to anything in creation. To try to represent him with an image is to demean him, to bring him down to the same level as his creatures. So he alone defines the way in which his creatures are to worship him. And he'll do this in a very precise, a very detailed way in all of the ceremonial laws of the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices. And it's because his design of worship for Israel would in every point point forward to the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Now what's significant about Jesus in light of this commandment is that he is called in Colossians 1 the image of the invisible God. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the ultimate reason that human beings shouldn't try to represent God with an image is because the day will come when God will actually send his own image into the world. The only image that faithfully and completely represents the fullness of who he is. And it's to that image... Jesus, that we may now bow down and worship. It's an image that's not of our own making. It's the one that God has given us. The third commandment isn't about using God's name as a profanity when we stub our toe or experience the shock, although that's probably encompassed in it. 
It's actually about making promises. That's why we have the term swear words, because we're swearing an oath. That's what its origin is. Jesus, see if the right verse is up, yes, Jesus actually told us not to swear. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great God. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, the Jews at the time of Jesus said, oh, we won't use the Lord's name to swear an oath, but we'll, we'll find lots of other things instead, like the temple or Jerusalem or my own head. Jesus is very strong here. He's essentially expounding that third commandment. God will not have his name used as a means to achieve our ends or to secure our business deals or to get our own way in the courtroom. He won't be used as a tool to justify our dishonesty and selfishness and greed. So Israel were only to use the Lord's name in the context of reverent and obedient worship. Understanding his name wasn't just a label like our names tend to be, but his name was a designation of his whole character. To know God's name is to know God in his fullness. That's why it's at the name of Jesus that every creature will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The fifth commandment is, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, the first commandment with a promise that your days may be long in the land. So it's more than just honouring parents, something that can easily become an idolatry in itself. Sometimes family loyalty can trump everything else, even faithfulness to God. See how this command involved both looking back to honour our parents who have invested in us, but also to look forward to the future when our children will inherit what we have passed on to them. Commandments 6, 7 and 8. I'm not sure what's happening there. Maybe I'll just turn that off. Commandments 6, 7 and 8, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. They kind of speak for themselves, but we should recall that Jesus specifically quoted Commandments 6 and 7, murder and adultery, and showed us that obedience to these commandments isn't just about physical, external obedience, but about the state of the heart. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. If you look with lust, you're an adulterer. So entertaining a desire to do these things, even if we don't literally act on them, still amounts to disobedience. Commandment 9 is often wrongly reduced just down to don't tell a lie. But it's not just about truth-telling. It's about how we speak to and about one another. Do not bear false witness against your neighbour. Bear false witness is a, is a legal term. Thanks, Malcolm. 
So it's meant to be firstly imply, uh, applied in the context of a court, but then it should flow out into every aspect of how we represent and describe our neighbour to others and to themselves. Do you remember Rahab, the woman who was commended for her faith when she hid the men who were spying out the promised land and she lied to the soldiers who were trying to find them? Rahab was actually obeying this commandment, even though she technically told a lie. Why? Because she used her words to fulfil the law of love. She put her own life in danger in order to protect these men. The fact that she technically told a lie was irrelevant to the fact that it was her words about them that actually saved them. Finally, the Tenth Commandment shows us this principle that obedience to all of the commandments starts with the heart. That which our heart desires will always in some way or other flow into our actions. Covetousness plants the seed for all other sins against our neighbour. If we desire something our neighbour has, then ultimately we'll be willing to lie, steal, murder, commit adultery and dishonour them to get what we want. This tenth commandment is like a bookend along with the first commandment and it's the key to obedience. Deal with the covetousness of your heart and the other neighbour-centred commands will follow. But then how can the covetousness of my heart be dealt with other than having the Lord as my God, as the only God with no other gods before him. Well, this, this was to be Israel's life in the covenants, to be a holy people set apart exclusively for the Lord, honouring and worshipping and loving him alone, loving one another's neighbour and in doing so displaying the glory of the Lord. And in this they would be this priestly people, making the glory and goodness of the Lord known to those around them. So we cannot and we should not avoid the fact that as a new covenant people who also have this call to be a priestly people, we're called to holiness. We know that we've been consecrated and been sanctified by Jesus, our great high priest. We are a holy people. And the New Testament contains many commands, at least a thousand, about what our new life in Christ should look like as we live and serve together as the church living in the grace of God. This holiness expressed in our love for one another is what enables us to be not only a holy people but to be a priestly people that we saw earlier is our identity. We won't be faithful ministers of the gospel, of the good news or competent declarers of the excellencies of Christ unless we're striving together in the power of the Holy Spirit to be a community of faith and hope and love, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds and most importantly, 
reminding one another constantly of the abundance and free grace of God in Jesus in which we stand. Let's pray. Father, what a high calling and yet what a privileged calling you have given us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your treasured possession. What a privilege it is to know that you have called us and sent us out to declare the praises of the one who has redeemed us from darkness and brought us into your marvellous light. Father, this is a calling that we have no hope of doing ourselves in our own stead, our own strength, our own abilities. So we ask that you might fill us with your Holy Spirit, that he might uh, embolden us and equip us and engift us to be this people so that not only may we encourage one another and know this assurance of our hope together but that we might be bold proclaimers and a, a banner to the world around us of your holy righteous love in Jesus and we pray in his name Amen